Thank you, Scott. If you take your Bible, turn with me to the book of 1 Kings chapter 12. Isn't it wonderful to be forgiven, the promise of forgiveness, forever forgiven? It brings new life to us. Praise the Lord for that. 1 Kings chapter 12 is where you find in our uh, second, second sermon here in our series on God's Word to a Divided Kingdom. We find ourselves here in 2 Kings 12. And um, you know, as I, uh, if you go to a bookstore and look around, you will find lots of books and lots of opinions on good leadership. It's everywhere. Um, there's whole leadership sections. And uh, if you go to the library or go to a bookstore, you could probably buy more books than you could read in a lifetime. When I became the senior pastor here a few years ago, this was a topic that became very interesting to me. I, I wanted to know all I could about leadership because as a leader, there are lots of things that you have to decide. There are things you have to say yes to. There are things you have to say no to. One of the questions that occupied my mind was, how do people make good decisions? I was in the middle of reading a biography of Dwight Eisenhower, and I was amazed when you read the stories about D-Day and you look into the decision about when to go, I wondered what went through his mind. Who did he listen to? And more importantly, who did he choose not to listen to? Why did he choose to go or not go? These are the hardest decisions that leaders have to make, and the decisions come down to a decision-making process in the heart of every leader. So while he was still senator, John F. Kennedy wrote a well-known book called Profiles in Courage, and you might be familiar with that book. It's uh, included some short stories about people in the Senate who did hard things. I've not read that book, but uh, apparently it is a very well-known and very successful uh, book. A lot of people have read it. It's been, uh, I think it even got some awards. And most of us would like to think that we would be good leaders, that we would fit into a book like Profiles in Courage. But what makes the difference between someone who's a, a good leader and someone who's a bad leader? In God's Word, the Bible gives us an unvarnished view of the heart of man. It peels back all the ways that we try to cover ourselves, and it shows us um, as it cuts deep who we truly are without Jesus. And in the story today, we'll see a profile in bad leadership. We'll see profiles in bad leadership, men who did not seek the Lord, men who, um, uh, who sought to, to do their own thing, and we will, we will learn a lot from this. And I hope that you'll have your heart open as we look at God's Word today, 1 Kings chapter 12. Let's pray as we begin. Father, we ask you to give us wisdom as we look at your Word. I pray that we would know exactly what you'd have for us to take from it and help us to see ourselves here, but also the hope and the grace that you give us through Christ and how we can overcome these sins that lead us towards a bad way and lead us towards living a life that is pleasing to you and that reflects godly leadership. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. First thing we'll see here in this, uh, in this book, or in this, uh, in this chapter, is that pride leads to division. Pride leads to division. Why does pride lead to division? Why does pride create so many problems? The first clear thing we see is that pride that proud people will not serve others. Read with me in verse 1. He says, Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone to Shechem to make him king. So they were coming to Shechem, this place. It was a place of covenant renewal. I actually went and found a picture. This is a picture of modern-day Shechem. It's between two mountains, Mount Gerizim on one and Mount Ebal on the other. 
And here is where the, uh, the people of Israel with Joshua made renewal of their covenant. It's the nation uh, where they would come to, to gather to make Rehoboam king. Keep reading with me in verse 2. It says, So it happened when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard it, for he was still in Egypt. He had fled from the presence of King Solomon and had been dwelling in Egypt. Verse 3, They sent and called him, the they there is the people of Israel. And Jeroboam and a whole assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam. So here's what's happening. If you remember last time, there's been a division here. God has, has told Jeroboam that there would be a division in the kingdom and that ten tribes would go to be under his governance. And, and, and he was working under Solomon. Uh, Jeroboam was working under Solomon. And he was from Ephraim. And he, he flees to Egypt to be there. And then now he comes out of Egypt to come back to the nation once he hears Solomon is dead and they're making Rehoboam to be the king. And as he comes, he was in charge. Jeroboam was in charge of some of the labor that was involved in the building of certain cities, which we saw last week. Look at verse 4. As they come, Jeroboam and the whole assembly of Israel come to Rehoboam, and they say to him, verse 4, your father Solomon made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the burdensome service of your father and his heavy yoke which he put on us, and we will serve you. For he said to them, depart, for three days, then come back to me, and the people departed. Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who stood before his father, Solomon, while he still lived. And he said, how do you advise me to answer these people? Notice the advice given by the elders. They spoke to him saying, if you will be a servant to these people today and serve them and answer them and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever." It was true, Solomon had made their yoke heavy. The northern kingdom had been involved in forced labor. Solomon had been taking people from the north and using them to build kingdoms in the south, to build buildings in the south. And this was something that caused great, the cracks began to form here in the unity of this kingdom. But look at key verse here, verse 4 and verse 7. I want you to notice, if you have a pencil, you might want to underline the word serve. He says, Lighten the burden service of your father, for his heavy yoke which he put upon us, the end of verse 4 says, and we will what? We will serve you. The people of Israel say, we will come to you and we will serve you, King Rehoboam, if you will lighten the burden you have given to us. Now go down to verse 7. The advice given to him from the, the elder says, if you will be a what? A servant to these people and serve them. It's not just being a servant. You have to actively serve them and answer them and speak good words to them. That is, you will talk to them. You will hear them. They will have input with you. Then they will be your what? Servants forever. Proud people do not serve. Proud people do not serve. And Rehoboam is a proud man. He is, he is a man who listens to the advice of these elder people, and he will not actually obey it. If you keep going, as, as what happens with many pride, pride, people full of pride, proud people, is that instead of listening to wise advice, <clears throat> their discernment metric, what really matters to them about decision-making is who will tell me what I want to hear. So what does he do next? He goes to other people. It says, verse 8, he rejected the advice which the elders had given him, and consulted with the young men who had grown up with him, who stood before him. So there's a contrast here between the old and the young, between the wise and the foolish. And Rehoboam, hearing these 
Wise men tell him, you need to lighten up the load and serve the people and they will serve you back. He doesn't want to have anything to do with this. He rejects this. He says, this is not how I want to go. And he seeks people who will listen to him, or I'm sorry, who he will get to say what he wants to hear. Verse 9, he said to them, what advice do you give? How should we answer this people who have spoken to us saying, lighten the yoke which your father put upon us. I, I think you understand the idea of a yoke. A yoke is a burden. It's like something you put on a beast of burden. It was a big, heavy wooden contraption that would the oxen or the, the, the animals would pull in order to do work. And so they're describing the labor they've been required to do like that. They are feeling they are enslaved. Lighten the yoke which your father put upon us. Verse 10, the young men who had grown up with him spoke to him saying, thus you should speak with those people who have spoken to you saying, your father made our yoke heavy, but you make it lighter for us. Thus you shall say to them, <clears throat> my little fingers shall be thicker than my father's waist. And now, whereas my father put on a heavy yoke on you, I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips. I will chastise you with scourges. Proud man boasts and oppresses those who are under him. A proud man does everything he can to bring fear and intimidation he says, you think you had it bad before? Just wait till I get in charge. He says, my father, he wasn't hard. You think that, think that was hard? Just wait. The idea here of scorpions or scourges, he's speaking here of something that would have been uh, uh, like a whip, the, a very violent whip. I, I, one of the key things we learned from this proud man, Rehoboam, is that pride leads to division and proud people will not serve other people. If you are a proud person, if you do not want to serve others, you have a pride problem. You think of yourself too highly, as did Rehoboam. Let's keep going. We'll see the second part here, beginning in verse 12. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king had directed, saying, come back to me on the third day. Verse 13, then the king answered the people roughly, and he rejected the advice which the elders had given him. And he spoke to them according to the advice of the young man, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scourges. Jeroboam and the people come back, and we learn a lot about how he responds to them. How does he respond? He responds roughly. This is the second key thing we learn about pride, proud people, is that proud people are harsh with others. He responds roughly. The word roughly is used in the book of Genesis to describe how Joseph spoke with his brothers when they came into him, and he was dressed up like, a, like a, a, an official. He was an official in Pharaoh's palace, and here he is speaking as a superior to an inferior, He's speaking roughly with them. It's the same idea here. He's speaking as one who is a, a superior, and rather than listening to them, he makes things worse. This is the equivalent of saying, uh, more bricks, no straw. He is saying, you have to produce more, you have to do more. And like Pharaoh's heart that was hardened and whom God hardened after that, Rehoboam's behavior was under the divine control of God. God's hand is at work even in using this wicked man. Look at verse 15. Here we see the providence of God. He says, so the king did not listen to his people. Notice this, for the turn of events was from the Lord, that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord had spoken by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. God was going to be fulfilled. God's word would be fulfilled to this nation with this proud and harsh man. God can use wicked leaders, and God does use wicked leaders to fulfill His purposes. God uses prideful people like this, this proud man. How do the people react to this? We see in verse 16, now when all Israel saw the king did not listen to them, people answered the king, said, what share have we in David? 
We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, now see to your own house, O David. So Israel departed to their tents, but Rehoboam reigned over the children of Israel who dwelled in the city of Judah. What shares do we have, they say? We don't belong here. What, what part are we of this nation? If you're going to treat us like this, we're out, they say. We're not treating, we're not going to accept this kind of treatment. They say, to your tents. In other words, go home, O Israel. Don't be a part of this coronation process for Rehoboam. Leave this kingdom, be to your own people, and then you go and deal with your own house, David. David speaking of the southern kingdom. Deal with your own problems. See, proud people are harsh with others, and this leads to division. We see a third truth here, beginning in verse 18, that proud people only seek peace when it's too late. What we have in verse 18 is Adoram. It says, King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was in charge of the revenue. We know from earlier passages as well that Adoram was in charge or was working with Jeroboam. He had a relationship with Jeroboam and was, in, was related to the, uh, the, 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 um, the service or the forced labor that Jeroboam was head in charge of chapters earlier. He was in charge of the revenue, but all Israel, notice what they did. How do they respond? They stoned him with stones and he died. Therefore, King Rehoboam mounted his chariot in haste and flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. King Rehoboam sends Adoram. There's a lot of debate, a lot of questions over what exactly he was doing. Why was he sending Adoram there? Was he sending him there to collect taxes? Probably not. It seems more likely it was some sort of envoy like a relationship or diplomat, dip, diplomacy, sending someone to go and on behalf be an ambassador to try to reconcile this or deal with this. If you want to put pencil in the, the margin there, 1 Kings 4, 6 shows us Adoram's relationship to Jeroboam there. But, but, but he's doing this as a diplomatic envoy, but it's completely miscalculated. Because as he goes, how does he receive? He's going in there. He's a high-ranking official. He walks in to the kingdom, and they stone him with stones. They take stones, they kill him. And now Rehoboam realizes his mistake. It's too late. He has tried to seek peace, but it is far too late. And it says in verse 20, Now it came to pass when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had come back, they sent for him, called him to the congregation, made him king over all Israel, and there was none who followed the house of David but the tribe of Judah. So the ten northern tribes, all of Israel, followed Jeroboam. And Rehoboam's response is to mount some sort of military offensive to fight against Israel and reunite the kingdom. He says in verse 21, when Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah with all the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen men who were warriors to fight against the house of Israel that he might restore the kingdom of Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. But God says, no, you're not going to do that. It's too late. The kingdom has been divided. You will not go to war in this great way against your brethren. It says that in verse 22, he says, the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God, saying, speak to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, to the rest of the people, saying, thus says the Lord, you shall not go up nor fight against your brethren, the children of Israel, let every man return to his house, for this thing is from me. The word of the Lord to a divided kingdom comes. And God says, this is a divided kingdom now. My word is that you shall not go and fight against him. So they obeyed the voice of the Lord or the word of the Lord, turned back according to the word of the Lord. And in my opinion, it's kind of surprising that they obey God at this point. But they do. Rehoboam, the southern kingdom, choose not to fight their brothers, and they have pursued peace, but it was too late to achieve it. A couple quick points of application is that pride, especially in leaders, always leads to division. Why is that the case? Because proud people will not serve. Proud people are harsh, and proud leaders will only seek peace when it's too late. 
We'll see another profile in bad leadership with Jeroboam because he misses a huge opportunity. We'll see that in verse 25. He's being set up here to be a second Moses. He's almost painted like a picture of, of Moses who takes his children out of, out of slavery from Egypt into the promised land. Jeroboam here is almost like taking his people out of the, of, of the oppression of Rehoboam, and he misses a huge opportunity by pursuing false worship. And what we'll see in the second part is that fear, while, while it is true that we have pride leading to division, what we have here with Jeroboam is fear leading to corruption. Fear leads to corruption. Notice how this works. First, fear leads us away from trusting and obeying God. Jeroboam had received a promise from God in 1 Kings chapter 11. I think I have it up on the screen. I do. 1 Kings chapter 11, beginning in verse 36. uh, Jeroboam had received a promise from the prophet. Look at this. He says, And to his son I will give one tribe, that my servant David may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen for myself to put my name there. So notice what he's saying. He's saying, God is saying, I, my name will be in Jerusalem. My worship will be in Jerusalem. He said in verse 37, so I will take you and you shall reign over all your heart desires. You shall be king over Israel. Then it shall be, notice this, this is so important. If you heed all I command you, if you walk in my ways, do what is right in my sight, keep my statutes and my commandments as my servant David did, did, then I will be what? I will be with you and will build for you an enduring house as I built for David and will give Israel for you to you and I will afflict the descendants of David because of this, but not forever. Here's the promise he's saying. If you do what David did, if you pursue me, if you worship, if you do the right thing, I will establish King Jeroboam as king over Israel and you will have an enduring, long-lasting kingdom. What a promise. But what does Jeroboam do? Instead of trusting God, Jeroboam responds in fear. He does the exact, <coughs> excuse me, the exact opposite. What he does is instead of trusting the Lord, he builds a competing religion, a rivaling the house of the Lord built by Solomon in Jerusalem. Look with verse 25. Verse 25 says, Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim and dwelt there. And he went out from there and built, and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom may return to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord of, at Jerusalem, and the heart of his people will turn back from, to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they will kill me and go back to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Notice he has just been made king. Isn't this so true? It happens all the time. He's gotten something for the first time. He's now king. And what's the first thing he's worried about? Losing it. He, he says, I, I can't lose what I've just got. I'm afraid that if they had worshiped the Lord in Jerusalem, their hearts are going to be drawn back to God. They're going to be drawn back to Jeroboam, and they're going to be aligned to him instead of me. Their loyalties will go to him. That says a lot about worship and loyalties. It, shows, it tells us a lot about human nature. What we worship will draw our hearts. What do you worship? Where do you go to worship? What do you invest worship in? Here he says, he says, I need to build for myself. So he builds Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim. He dwells, dwells there. He builds Penuel. He, he starts to worry about the people. So what does he do? What is his decision? Look at verse 28. He decides to build a counterfeit religion. Therefore, the king asked advice, made two calves of gold, and said to the people, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here 
are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. And he set one up in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Now the thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. Interestingly enough, he too gets advice. And he seeks advice, and he gets bad advice. And he makes two golden calves. As he makes these two golden calves, the calf was a symbol of religion and of strength in the ancient world, a symbol of fertility and of prosperity. In fact, it's still a symbol of prosperity in our culture today. Have you ever heard of a bull market? You would know that our culture, when we talk about a bull market, means a good, prosperous market, and that's where this comes from, the idea of a bull, meaning, or a calf, meaning prosperity and financial prosperity. In fact, he's reflecting Aaron's same mistake he made at Sinai when he made a golden calf. And Aaron said the exact same thing that Jeroboam says. Here, notice, this, notice in your Bible, it says, Here um, uh, are the gods which brought you out of the land of Egypt. The word gods there is the word Elohim, which can be either plural, like gods, or often is used in a singular sense to refer to, we call it a plural of majesty, to refer to our God, the Lord. So he could, he's really what he's saying is, is I, you're going to worship God by worshiping this idol. This is the God who brought you out of Egypt, he says. He points to a golden calf. He was claiming worship of the Lord. And this is direct violation to God's law. We see this in Deuteronomy chapter 12. He tells us they're not to build worship centers outside Jerusalem. Look at Deuteronomy 12. These are the statutes and judgments which you shall be careful to observe in the land which the Lord God of your fathers is giving you to possess all the days you live in the earth. You shall utterly destroy the places which the nations which you shall dispossess serve their gods. So if there's a high place, what should they do to it? Destroy it. And on the high mountain and on the hills, under every green tree, you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, burn their wooden images in fire, cut down their carved images of their gods, destroy their names from their place. You shall not worship the Lord your God with such things. If you keep going, he says in verse 5, but you shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses out of all your tribes to put his name for his dwelling place, and there you shall go. And this was to be the nation of Israel worshiping in Israel in Jerusalem. If you go down a couple more verses in chapter 12, verse 13 and 14, he says, take heed to yourself that you do not offer your burnt offerings in every high place you see, but in the place which the Lord chooses in one of your tribes, there you shall offer your burnt offerings, there you shall do all I command you. Notice the command there, fear leading him to disobedience. It leads him away from trusting and obeying God. So much so that he actually sets up a competing religion in Dan and Bethel. Now, Bethel's on the south part of, of, of the northern kingdom. Dan is in the north. And he's saying, let me give you something, people. It's too hard for you to go all the way to Jerusalem. I'm going to make it convenient for you. Convenient worship is the worst thing you can do. It's not about us. When we make convenient worship, we're making it all about our likes and dislikes. And he says, don't do that. Here, Jeroboam makes a major, major flaw. He's, fear leads to this corruption of religion away from trusting and obeying God. And I secondly put here, fear leads to manipulation and flattery. If you look at these verses, we'll read quickly and work through almost to our application section. I want you to notice this, verse 31. He says, he made shrines of the high places and made priests from every class of people who were not the sons of Levi. He did exactly what God said not to do. He goes around to the high places, the places that were sacred among the people, and they were probably nice places, like the high places were the best places. 
And there were the places people were used to going to. The places that already had roads to them. There was probably a nice view in the high place. It was a place people liked to worship. And he says, okay, we'll just, we'll just use this, but we're going to, now we're going to worship the Lord in this high place. And not only that, he says, um, I'm going to make every one of you, you can be priests. You don't have to be a Levite anymore. I'm, you, you could be a priest and you could be a priest. You got a son who wants to, oh, he can be a priest too. Why don't you come on and be a priest of, the, of, of my new religion? And he's flattering the people. He is using manipulation of, of the people. He's trying to manipulate them. He's trying to, to, to uh, use them. And look at verse 32. Jeroboam ordained a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah, and offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did at Bethel, sacrificing to the calves, which he had made. And at Bethel, he installed the priest of the high place, which he had made. Notice that he had made. He had made. This is not from God. This is from people. Verse 33, he made offerings on the altar, which he had made at Bethel on the 15th day of the eighth month, on the eighth on the month which he had, this is explicitly stated, which he had devised in his own heart. And he ordained a feast for the children of Israel and offered sacrifices on the altar and burned incense. He didn't limit the places of worship. He made shrines everywhere so everyone felt special. He didn't limit the priesthood. He made priests of every class of people. Everyone could be a priest. He made up his own feast out of his own heart. He was seeking to please people, manipulate them, flatter them, make them feel good about themselves. And we see here two profiles in failed, bad leadership. Pride, which leads to division, and fear, which leads to corruption. And I'm convinced that fear drives so much of the corruption we see in worship today. We keep going. My question is, is that if God can use hard-hearted, proud, foolish, fearful leaders to do His will, God can use those, and he has used those, and he uses them to chasten a disobedient people. These two leaders give us examples of how we should not lead and where God has placed our authority. You might say, well, I don't have a business. I'm not a pastor. I'm not a Sunday school teacher. I'm just a, a regular person. Every person has been given leadership in some area. And how will you lead? Well, God has given us instruction on the proper way to lead. If you look at this profiles and bad leadership, you just flip it on its head we see how God asks us to lead, and here is what we need to see. Number one, God uses humble leaders to bring unity. Just as God uses, or we see proud people bringing disunity, God uses humble leaders to bring unity. How does this happen? Well, first, humble people will serve. Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 through 28, Jesus speaking about the harshness and roughness of speech we see here is the opposite of how God instructs us to deal with people. Jesus called them to himself and said, you know, the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them, yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your what? Servant. What did Rehoboam not want to be? A servant. If you're going to be a humble leader, you will serve others. Whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave, just as the Son of Man. Jesus, our example, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus says, I am among you as the one who serves. He identifies his way of dealing with people as a servant. 
In our culture today, that's not so, such a big deal to us. And I, I need to just emphasize this. Like, to us, we say thank you to a server. When we're at a restaurant and we say, excuse me, ma'am, and we speak to a, our waitress, like, that is not how they would have dealt with their servants. Like, because of our, we don't even realize how Christianized our culture has become, and you might laugh at that, but it's true, and that we treat people who serve with respect. That is not the culture of the world. That has not been the history of the culture of the world. In the history of the culture of the world, in this Roman culture, a servant would have been looked down upon. A servant doesn't have his own will. A servant does what the master says. A servant is, is, is washing feet. He's not sitting at the table with the master. Uh, to be among you as one who serves would have been to be looked down upon. We need to understand that God is calling us for radical servant leadership, to love people and serve people and do things for people that you really don't want to do. Anybody can serve when it's easy, when it's, when it's you know, in front of people or when people notice. What about when nobody notices? What about when nobody ever finds out? One time I showed up here on a Saturday I happened to be driving by, and I had to pick something up, I think, and I noticed there was a man and his son out here trimming bushes at our church. I said, hey, what's going on? And they said, oh, we noticed some things were a little bit out of shape, and we just wanted to help out a little bit. And um, I, I said, well, you know, this workday's coming up, like, in a few months. He's like, yeah, but, you know, we wanted to just help out here, and don't tell anybody. <laughs> I said, okay. Now, if you do that, you better be good at what you're doing. You don't just show up and start hacking stuff. But I was, I, was, I was shocked in that moment. I thought, this is great. This is servant leadership. This is someone who's like, look, there's a problem. I'm going to solve the problem. I'm not going to tell anybody I'm going to solve the problem. There can be danger. I understand there's danger that. Just bear with me here. Understand what I'm saying. That he did not want approval. He did not want people to be clapping for him. He did not want notice. He just wanted to serve God. Praise the Lord for people like that. Servant leadership is, is, is gone from our culture today because people today see authority as a power structure. They say, I need to get up in authority so I have people under me who do my work. That's what people think about leadership. What God says is turn that on its head. People in authority serve. Husbands, you lead your wives by serving and loving your wife, not putting her down. Bosses, love your employees and serve your employees, and they will serve you. This is biblical principles, but it's against the way our world thinks. It's against the way our culture thinks. Jesus even dealt with his disciples this way. Look at verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, John 13, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, he should depart from the world and from the Father, having loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to bury, to betray him. Jesus knowing, uh, betray him, sorry, let me move ahead. Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin, began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Jesus, knowing that this, this apostle, this, this disciple named Judas Iscariot, who, 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 had, who had betrayed him, he still loved him and washed his feet. And Jesus was on his knees, scrubbing the dirt and the grime and the refuse and the junk from the roads of Galilee and Jerusalem from his disciples' feet, and he did that as an example to serve. God uses humble leaders to bring unity. In fact, Paul sees himself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Over and over again, he calls himself a slave of Christ. Servant leadership is desperately needed. Secondly, humble people will speak with grace. 
not roughly. If you're not getting your way, do you raise your voice? Do you become more direct? Do you lower your voice? Do you whisper? Do you become more intense? Do you use foul language? Do you seek to intimidate? Do you speak roughly with others? The Bible tells us in Colossians chapter 4, verse 6, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. You ought to love and speak with grace in your hearts to the Lord. In fact, when we come together, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Let the word of Christ so live in your heart that it dwells there so that you can speak and admonish one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord, and we are not to have corrupt communication among us. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but only what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Thirdly, humble people seek peace. Ephesians chapter 4 tells us that we should endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's work, endeavoring to maintain the unity of the Spirit. In fact, in Matthew 5, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons or children of God. And in James 3.18, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. God blesses humble people who seek peace. Secondly, I want you to notice not only is it true that, that God uses humble people, God uses courageous leaders to promote truth. If you're fearful, you will twist and distort and corrupt truth, but God uses courageous leaders to promote truth. Why is this the case? Well, because courageous or courage tends to lead people towards trusting and obeying God. Joshua 1.7 only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do all that the law of which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it from the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. It takes courage to trust God and obey. It's easy to sin. It takes not a bone of courage in your body to fall in line with the world and do what the world, that's why it's called the, the broad way. It's easy to do the way the world wants to do. It takes courage to stand up and do what's hard and right. That's why we need leaders, men in our homes. We need leaders, men in our churches and women in our churches and women in our homes. We need people who stand up and lead their families towards righteousness and have the courage to say, I'm sorry, we don't do that. I'm sorry, I choose to follow the Lord. In fact, in 1 Timothy 1.7, I love this verse, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power of love and of a sound mind. God calls us to be courageous in how we live our lives. And God uses courageous leaders to promote truth. And we secondly see that God uses courageous leaders because courage means seeking approval from God alone. This is why you can be courageous and seek truth. You need to reject flattery, reject giving people what they want, and speak the truth. I love this verse from Joshua chapter 24. He says, Now therefore fear the Lord, serve Him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. Serve Him in sincerity and truth. Who do you seek approval from? Is it more important to you that you please the Lord or that you please your friend? Is it more important to you that you please yourself or you please God? Ken Collier, a good friend of ours, used to say, or still does, only two choices on the, sh on the shelf, pleasing God or pleasing self. And it's true that we need to choose to please the Lord and have the courage to seek approval from Him alone. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, we ask you as we 
come like this and we recognize the, the bad leadership displayed in these passages of Scripture of these men, how you strike us with, or how you teach us in the New Testament and in other places as well, how we should be humble and how we should be courageous. But all that's impossible without the grace that comes from Jesus Christ, our Savior. Or we cannot do this in our own selves. We cannot be courageous on our own. We cannot be humble on our own. Humility comes from knowing Christ and knowing what He did on our behalf and not trying to work our way to heaven, not trying to be uh, a big person, but recognizing we are a sinner who's saved by grace. Courage comes when we recognize that, that you have the one who has, who has rescued us and that your power is what saves us. Your power is what gives us what we need to go day by day. And so, Lord, today, I beg of you, help us be people who are full of humility and full of courage because we are saved and we are growing, because we know the, the gospel truth. We recognize the gospel as, is, as, as you've told us in your word, the gospel that the good news that Jesus is here to save sinners, and we are sinners. Or we were sinners until you save us, and then we are made righteous. What a blessing to have forgiveness of our sin and confidence to stand before you that we can be courageous to do what we ought to do. And Lord, I pray for those here this morning who, have, who look at their, their leadership and in their family, look at their leadership in their marriage, look at their leadership in whatever capacity you've given them at their job, at home, and they, and they recognize the failures of, of being harsh, of being proud, of being, uh, of being one who is weak. And they desire to follow you. They desire not to be fearful, but to be courageous, not to be proud, but to be humble. Lord, I pray that they would confess that sin, recognizing a sin today, recognize the danger and where it's going, and they would confess it and come to you fully and, and completely, Lord, they would submit to you and ask for your grace to help them to be obedient to your word and to have speech that reflects the truth and speech that builds up instead of tears down. Uh, Lord, I pray as you work in our hearts today that we would uh, take a warning, as your word says, that, that a wise man will hear and increase in learning, that we will, we will hear the words of wisdom here of this fail, the failures of these men, and we will turn our hearts to, to obey you. Lord, be with us now as we make these decisions and as we humble ourselves before you. Help us to be humble. Help us to be brave. We pray all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. We're going to sing a song in dedication to the Lord. The song is a tender heart because we're asking God to give us that tender heart. Number 424, would you stand and turn in your blue book to 424?